This is an ABC podcast. Jock McLaren was taken prisoner by the Japanese army in 1942. But Jock didn't stay under its control. First, he escaped from the Changi prisoner of war camp in Singapore. He later managed to escape from the Sandakan POW camp in Borneo. And as a free man, Jock didn't try and make his way back home to Australia. Instead, he stayed in the islands of the Pacific as an audacious and deadly guerrilla fighter. Jock's service records list him as missing, then reported prisoner of war, and finally as escaped and on active service. Some of the stories about Jock seem too extraordinary to be true, like the time he removed his own appendix without anaesthetic. Tom Gilling has delved into the wartime exploits of Jock McLaren for his book, Bastard Behind the Lines. Hi, Tom. Hi, Sarah. Why this title? Why have you put the word bastard right at the front of your book, Tom? Well, it was a word that Jock used um, fairly freely, but the title really comes from a boat, a whale boat that was brought up by submarine from Australia while Jock was fighting as a guerrilla in the Philippines. And he stuck a gun at the front and back of it, and he used to rove around the coast of Mindanao, shooting up Japanese supply vessels and uh, attacking installations. But he called that boat the Bastard. He christened it the Bastard. He did. It's such a great Scottish name, Jock McLaren. Where was he from? He was from uh, Kirkcaldy on the east coast of Scotland, and he came out to Australia after the First World War. And what did he, he do for work here? He was a vet, although interestingly, his army admission papers, his enlistment papers, list him as a stud master. A stud master. That's a yes, great he, description. He's, I think, a man who was always um, economical with the truth. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what, what the reason would have been for him calling himself a stud master, except that he was um, perhaps disguising some of his skills in case... Uh, they wanted him to do something with them and he was hiding them. So he came out after World War I. Had he fought in the First World War? Well, he had fought in the First World War, yes, but he denied that when he joined the Australian Army. Why? And this, well, this was a bit of a puzzle for a while because several of people who he spoke to during the war said he was a veteran of the First World War and yet he had denied it on his paper. So I realised that he could only, by looking at his age, he was born in 1902, he could only have served in the First World War illegally by lying about his age because he was actually too young. So he lied about his age to join in the First World War. Now, if he had served legally in the First World War, he would have been too old to serve <laughs> for Australia in the Second World War. So he lied again in order to join up for the Second World War, for the Australians. Well, so how old would that have made him in World War Two? He would have been just over the cut-off. In fact, he was, he was a year below the cut-off, but that cut-off extended slightly um, as, the, as the war went on. And uh, so he was probably worried that if it moved any more, he might not be able to join up. After he, he did enlist and was sent off to the Pacific, what happened to, to Jock after the fall of Singapore in, in February 1942? Well, like all the thousands of Australian soldiers who went up there, arrived, they arrived just in time to become prisoners of war, and some remained prisoners of war for the, for the entirety of the war. Jock, by his own account, 
managed to um, slip under the wire at Changi within about a week of being a prisoner. But um, by another account he gave during the war, it was more like three or four weeks. But either way, he wasn't planning to stick around as a prisoner of war. Slipping under the wire sounds sort of very straightforward, Tom, but how tricky would it have been to escape from Changi? I think in the very early days of um, Japan having um, taken Singapore, it was the whole place was a bit of a shambles, and that included the prisoner of war camps. So before the Japanese finally bolted the gates, they were taking prisoners out to, on work parties into Singapore, and there was actually a bit of opportunity for enterprising characters like Jock to spot a way that he might get away. And so just before the um, the, the, war, the prisoner of war camp was really bolted down for good, he'd, he'd seen a way that he could um, he could get away and, and uh, find a boat and get across the water to well, Malaya. Well, getting out of the, the compound, getting under the fence is one thing. What did he do once he'd made it to that point? Well, unfortunately, the boat that he'd spotted lying there among the mangroves was actually a bit rotten, and he was halfway across to Malaya, to Johor at the bottom of Malaya, when the boat was taking on so much water, he clearly wasn't going to get there. Luckily for him, there was a small island in the Straits of Singapore, and uh, he managed to get across to there before the boat sank. And who was he with, Tom? He was with... Two people, by his account, the account he gave in his memoirs that he wrote after the war, although he wrote a intelligence report during the war in which he said he was with three, but let's say he was with two. He was with two other Queenslanders who were both working in the, both in the same part of the army that he was, a workshops battalion, and uh, he escaped with them across to Malaya. And once they'd made it ashore, these, say, three Australian soldiers, who helped them? They were helped by Chinese communist guerrillas in Malaya. So Jock was warned very early on not to trust the Malays, only to trust the Chinese. And the Chinese, they were, the Chinese were terribly persecuted by the Japanese. And so a lot of them just disappeared into the jungle and, and acted as, as communist terrorists there to um, try and... They funneled prisoners of war like Jack up the line to, to try and help them escape. What would he have done with them? Like, what, what would have life been like in the Malaya jungle with the Chinese communist terrorists? He'd have been very sick pretty soon and hungry. They were very poorly equipped. They had very little. They were tiny outposts of uh, probably just a, a couple of dozen Chinese hiding out in the jungle from the Japanese. It was a mir- miserable existence. And Jock obviously taught them a lot and they wanted him to stay on, but he was not keen for that. So he, he moved on. He moved on. Where was he heading? He was heading for Burma and after that for India, but it was always a myth that he would be able to escape there. Many people had the same idea. But in order to get to to Burma and then to India, you had to travel through some thousands of kilometres of territory where you couldn't actually rely on the population to help you. And it was that was the same problem for, for prisoners in India. Java, that um, there was every chance that if they showed themselves to a local, the local would hand them straight over to the Japanese who had a reward waiting for them. And is that what happened with Jock? That is, unfortunately. He, he didn't take that advice about uh, not trusting Malays. And he ran into a Malay policeman halfway up the peninsula and the Malay policeman said he'd go and get him some food and he came back with a truckload of other Malay policemen and Jock and his two mates, uh, Ginger and Wilkie, were both carted off to the Japanese, no doubt in return for a, a reward. I'm surprised they weren't just 
executed, shot straight away. Well, many were. That's quite right. It was that that was the, the standard punishment for escaping from a Japanese POW camp was to be executed. So he, he must have expected that that might well happen to him. And in fact, uh, according to his own account, for five days running, he and the others, other two were put up against a wall by the Japanese and an officer raised his sword and said aim, but then rescinded the order and they were marched back to their cells each day. So five times he was on the verge of being executed, but somehow it never happened. Do you have any idea why? I mean, how was it, was it smooth Scottish talking that got him out of that? I think there, these sort of anomalies happen um, all over the place in, in, during the war. I think he, was, he, he hit it off a little bit with the commandant because he was a First World War veteran and he'd seen that the commandant was a First World War veteran, although it then became clear that the commandant wasn't a veteran, but his, his dad was, and he was wearing his dad's sash, which was apparently what the Japanese were entitled to do. So maybe that gave them something in common and, and he just decided not to execute Jock. So after that awful five mornings in a row of thinking you're going to be executed and then at the last minute not being, where, were, where was Jock and his, his mates taken? I'm not sure they thought they'd done, done terribly well out of it. They were taken to Kuala Lumpur, to Pudu Jail, which was a, a, a miserable place where many people had died, very poor food, lots of disease. He was there for he was there for a few months, getting sicker and sicker. Because as a former escaper, the Japanese were certainly not going to allow him out on a work party. So he realised that that really his prospects were pretty grim unless he could get away from um, Malaya. And the Japanese were forming a work party to go and build an aerodrome in Borneo at Sandakan, and he managed to get himself on the work party. <laughs> Who did he meet at the, the waterfront in Singapore on his way out to this work camp in Borneo? He met another obsessive escaper. So he met Rex Blow, who was uh, from Brisbane, who was a champion swimmer as a, as a young lad. And Rex had been thinking about escaping since he'd been imprisoned in, uh, in Singapore. Jock had been thinking about escaping, a handful of others had, and they soon realised they were talking the same language. They were on a boat across to Sandakan, and they, and they got talking. And what was the name of, of their club, Tom? Uh, it was the DIT Club. I think DIT was Morse code for E for escape. <laughs> what had they already got their hands on uh, to help with the eventual escape? What were they smuggling with them? They had very little, although Rex rather recklessly had um, brought a pistol with him. And uh, as they were being unloaded at Sandakan, the Japanese were searching everything and somehow, and I cannot believe it, I don't think he could believe it either, um, he managed to choose the oldest Japanese guard to go towards with his gear and the, they were, the Japanese were really searching for writing materials and so he managed to um, let a pencil drop out of his bag and the Japanese guard held up this pencil with, um, with great delight because he'd found something and somehow missed the revolver that was lying <laughs> underneath it. So they're all taken to Bahala Island, which is just across the water from Sandakan, and, and they're meant to be building an aerodrome there. How did a local man called Coram come to play a, a big part in the escape plans of these Australian soldiers? On the voyage around to Sandakan, they'd stopped for a while at, uh, I think it was Kuching, and Jock had met someone who had formerly been a, a, a civilian administrator in, in Sandakan, 
And he said, if you need any help, you should um, try and contact this former Malay policeman, Coram, Constable, I think he was Constable 143. And Coram was, was very anti-Japanese and Jock managed to make himself known to Coram when he arrived at Sandakan because the Japanese used all the uh, Malay policemen to keep order, but um, they thought they were on side. People like Coram were, were very good at talking the talk for the Japanese, but in reality they were working with the, um, with the prisoners. And what advice did this Malay policeman, did Coram give Jock? Where did he suggest he, he head for? He, he reminded uh, Jock that um, the Philippines actually come very close to Borneo, so t- little tiny islands off the Philippine of the Philippines, the Tawi Tawi Islands, come down to within about a hundred kilometres or so of the coast of Borneo. And he suggested, and there was coming and going between traders, and he suggested to Jock that that would be the place to escape to if he could. So were Rex and Jock planning this escape together? Were all, were all the men, was it one big plan? It wasn't one big plan. It was awkwardly two big plans. So uh, <laughs> Jock was, of course, a private in those days. So Jock, Jock had a couple of mates who he was planning to escape with. Rex Blow was an officer and he had some officer mates that he was planning to escape with. And Jock was... Probably ready first, but was willing to uh, to wait until the officers were ready. But they really had to coordinate because if one group had escaped before the others, then um, the Japanese would have clamped down so quickly that the rest would not have managed to get away. So in the end, they agreed a plan where they'd all go together. And what decided the timing of the escape? It was being transferred to the mainland. So they were on Bahala Island, which is, as you said, a a tiny island in the mouth of Sandakan Bay. The aerodrome was being built on the mainland. They were being kept just in the short term on Bahala and they were about to be shipped across to the mainland. And Jock and Rex Blow both realised that once they're on the mainland, it would be much harder to escape. So the very night before, in fact, they saw the boats being prepared to take them across to the mainland and and that was the the night they um they escaped by dropping through the dunny and uh, running along a beach wait a minute wait a minute what do you mean dropping through a dunny well they they'd realized that the they were all the before the gates were closed every night the japanese um allowed prisoners to go out to the to the dunnies which were just overhanging the ocean and they they caused a bit of a commotion. They slipped out. They had enough mates there standing around making a noise. And um, Jock and his mates dropped through the holes. That can't I'll, have been I'll leave a pleasant, you to imagine the rest of it. That can't have been a pleasant escape. <laughs> it was, I, I don't think it was um, the most picturesque way of, of emerging from the camp. But. So they made it out onto the beach. What did they do next? Well, Jock and a couple of his mates were planning to go across on a on a dugout canoe they were they were strong enough to to paddle across to the philippines the rest had to actually hang out on the island while the japanese searched and searched for them so five of them actually waited on the island while the japanese were were looking for them and they uh, they were waiting for the the fuss to die down and then they would um, they would slip out on a boat themselves where did jock get a boat from Unfortunately, they stole them from a leper colony, which was um, just down on the beach. This is one of the one of the less attractive aspects of the escape. I'm, I have to say that the lepers had a couple of boats that they used for fishing, and uh, the prisoners went down there and made it pretty clear that they were taking them. And so they they managed to get just as you say a, a dugout canoe, so it wouldn't have sails. And they are then crossing the open sea to get to these islands. How dangerous would that have been? 
it would have been very dangerous, very tiring. So for the first uh, night or two, they would have just kept close to shore, paddled during the night and then pulled into a bay during the day. But at some point, they had to actually cross, cross the open ocean and Jock, who I think was all muscle and sinew, um, managed to get across. The officers took a s- slightly uh, easier route of uh, being smuggled across on a, on a trader's boat. So they made it a- a- across the sea to this island, Tawi Tawi, which was part of the Philippines. Who greeted the Australians? Who was there to meet them once they arrived? Well, the locals were, were according to according to Jock, were were delirious of them a wonderful reception of um, alcohol and whatever food they could find. But there was actually a guerrilla group operating there. So when the Americans surrendered at this at the start of the Pacific War in the Philippines, some American officers refused to refused to submit, refused to become prisoners, and they led um, small guerrilla groups of mostly Filipinos. And discipline was something of a problem, and they found the Australians were fantastic for training the guerrillas and for for teaching them how to how to how to fight. What kind of fighting were they involved with on that island? Were there Japanese troops there, or were they fighting offshore? What were they doing? On Tawi Tawi, not very much. The Japanese were were wary of um, of the island. They tended to to stay off it, but they would arrive um, once in a while. They would um, land in a boat. A couple of hundred soldiers would come across. They'd they'd do a bit of burning and looting, according to Jock, and um, the guerrillas would run into the middle of the island and stay away. And then the Japanese would leave. So on on Tawi Tawi, they didn't see much action. Were they able to send any intelligence back to to headquarters in Australia or the stra- or, or the states? They were, and that was another of the invaluable things that the Australians helped with, which was setting up coast guard stations to be able to watch Japanese shipping. So the Americans had submarines all all around those in the waters all around the Philippines. But they needed intelligence, and the the guerrillas set up a fantastic system of of, of watching Japanese boat movements, conveying it to the guerrillas in Mindanao, which is the big island next door, and then that was passed on to the Americans in Australia, and submarines would then um, sink the Japanese ships. <laughs> I wonder if the Japanese got wise to that that they were they were being observed. In the end, they would have started looking for the high ground where people might have been watching and the uh, guerrillas started to, yes, get visits from the Japanese up on those Coast Guard stations. But it was such a sophisticated system, it was very effective. And were they communicating by radio or or how, Tom? Yes, they were communicating by radio down to the bottom of the hill, from the bottom of the hill to Mindanao, and then from Mindanao down to the Pacific headquarters in Australia. One day on that island of, of Tawi Tawi, a group of shipwrecked Japanese sailors, not Navy, but merchant sailors, uh, came ashore. What happened then? Well, this is a pretty dark story. 20 of them or so arrived. They washed up. They, they thought that the Japanese would have held the island, but in fact, they would have been horrified to see that it was held by the guerrillas and the Australians who were with them. Now, in the end, of course, there are a number of different accounts, but what it comes down to basically is that the um, the guerrillas and the Australians killed all those sailors. They they couldn't keep them prisoners, and so they took them out to sea and they they pushed them overboard or shot them. It's a it's a war crime, isn't it? It's it's not a it's not an attractive story, but um, 
the gorillas had very little food. The, the gorillas had no um, facilities really to keep prisoners. And they knew that if they let those, um, those sailors go back, then they would have come back with information that would uh, have allowed the Japanese to, to perhaps wipe them out. So it, it's a story, Jock doesn't say an awful lot about it. Rex Blow doesn't say an awful lot about it. But um, Rex Steele, who was another of the Australians who were there, says um, he admits to it and he says it happened. But he says in the circumstances, really, there was little else that we could have done. How much do you think the experiences with Japanese in Japanese prisons or of Japanese treatment of Chinese civilians or other people would have fed into... I don't know, the attitude that those Australian soldiers would have had to these Japanese sailors. What kind of climate was going there at the time around attitudes towards Japanese people, whether they're in the military or not? I think that's the, the key question, really, Sarah, because um, Jock talked in his book he wrote, in the memoirs he wrote after the war, he talks about seeing roads strewn with the bodies of uh, Chinese women and children in Malaya. As I said, it was the, the Chinese that the, the Japanese were, were the most savage towards. And um, Rex Blow talks about seeing heads on poles all over Singapore when they were when they were going into the city on work parties. So there's no doubt that the even though the Australians had escaped very quickly from being prisoners of war, they hadn't endured the kind of sufferings that the men on the Thai Burma Railway had. They'd seen enough of um, Japanese bastardry they'd seen enough japanese atrocities against civilians to to really mean that they were they were unlikely to be disposed to to treat these men with sympathy the japanese navy did start making larger and, and more regular attacks on the island perhaps as you're saying tom because they're aware they're being surveyed from from outposts so where did the surviving australians who'd escaped from sandakan where did they head to next once tawi tawi started to look a little too dangerous their ultimate objective was to get back to Australia and they were never going to get back to Australia from Tawi Tawi, but the the Allies were supplying the guerrillas in Mindanao, which is a much bigger organize a much bigger island with a much bigger guerrilla organization. The Australians were supplying um, materials which was coming up on American subs from Australia. So there was a chance where they could have direct communications with MacArthur's headquarters in Australia, and it was a place where they could uh, organise getting back to Australia if they wanted. And what was going on? I mean, well, first of all, how did they get to Mindanao from Tawe Tawe? They, they managed to get across on a boat. Again, it was um, there was a lot of trading going on. So even though the Japanese occupied, there was obviously trade going on. There was still a domestic economy of sorts that was continuing. So whilst the Japanese were, were taking some care to try and um, stop any kind of uh, guerrilla activity, they couldn't stop everything. And so they managed, they were smuggled across by, uh, by, by trading boats. And what was the situation on, on Mindanao when the Australians arrived? What different groups were in conflict or, or in alliance there? Mindanao was a, a real war zone because there was a, there was a strong uh, Japanese garrison uh, on the island. But um, there was also a strong Moro presence. So the Moros were a, a Muslim tribe who had resisted Spanish occupation. They resisted American occupation. They basically resisted government by the Philippines, um, by the Christian Filipinos. And they sided with whoever could do the best deal with them. So they were not automatically going to fight with the guerrillas against the Japanese. In fact, 
Many collaborated with the Japanese, but they were at times almost as dangerous to Jock and his fellow guerrillas as the Japanese were. What kind of fighting was, was Jock and the other Australians involved in with the Japanese on Mindanao? Again, when, like, as on Taui Taui, the um, groups of Japanese soldiers would, would arrive, would land and then um, come ashore and the guerrillas would decide according to the numbers they saw whether or not they would stand or fight or whether they would just melt into the jungle. But um, Mindanao was a far more strategically, far more important island and so the, the Japanese were much more determined to wipe out the guerrillas but also to, to wipe out those Coast Guard stations because they were losing so much shipping. Did the Japanese army ever make a direct attack on Jock's guerrilla camp? They did. Some of the equipment that had come up from Australia was was wireless equipment, and the wireless equipment was much better than the old stuff that the guerrillas had been using before. But it did allow the Japanese to intercept it and to pinpoint where the where the guerrillas were. So the Japanese made one or two very determined attempts to try and um, smash the guerrilla headquarters where for a time Jock was staying. In those memoirs or in, in other reports, how did he feel about this kind of guerrilla fighting? I imagine for some, you know, for someone like me, it is a nightmare prospect, Tom, but I mean, is there someone, is there a different kind of personality type, like well, perhaps Jock's that, that almost revels in the very nature of guerrilla fighting? I'm with you on that one. I think I'd be part of the group that would withdraw ta <laughs> tactically into the mountains, yes. Um, I think Jock was, was born to it. He was a bit scathing about one or two of the other Australians who habitually were uh, doing some vital training activities or were sick. Had to go sick and check or, on the radio. Exactly, <laughs> had to check on the radio and weren't available to, to confront the Japanese when they came ashore. But I think, I think Jock, uh, I mean, I think there, there was something madcap about the way he did revel in that kind of fighting, but I think it was... He was a very enterprising figure. He was, a, he was described by um, Ray Steele, who, who fought with him for a while there, as, as a leader, completely fearless. But I think, I think it was something he did revel in, and so he, he was never someone to run from a fight. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Tom, this island of Mindanao was a, a post where these escaped Australian soldiers could make their way back home to Australia. Did some of, of the servicemen do that? Some did, yes. They, they drew lots. None, none of them, according to um, Jock, were, were keen to go. Um, they weren't I, keen to go. Apparently not. He certainly wasn't keen to go. Rex Blow wasn't keen to go. And actually, Ray Steele wasn't keen to go. I suspect that perhaps one or two of the others were. One or two of the others were very sick and, and really had to, be, had to be shipped home. But they drew lots to see who would go home. 
And the senior officer who was Steele was, um, he, he drew the short straw, but in fact, he would have been the most useful person to go home because probably his intelligence reports would have been felt to be the most reliable. But uh, either way, Jock refused, Rex Blow refused, and they fought on while the others, not all in one go, but the others went back by submarine to Australia over a, over a couple of months. By submarine? By submarine, yes, the Americans. Uh, the Americans had had many submarines in those waters, but it was it was very important to keep the guerrillas supplied because obviously MacArthur had promised to come back to the Philippines, and um, they they needed the guerrillas to be causing trouble for for the in the in the year before that. By this time, Tom, by early nineteen forty four, what kind of health was Jock himself in? Generally, I think he was he was fairly robust. I think there was probably nothing of him. He was he was probably um, largely um, sinew at that time, but um, he was quite healthy most of the time. He did get sick and uh, was sent away to recuperate, but he seemed to spend most of that time brewing up some rot gut with old bits of motor engine that he'd found. What he just he was he was distilling alcohol when he was recuperating. He was. Although <laughs> it was said to be very good stuff and so he, he thought he could wangle his way back because the commanding officer would like it. But uh, But those tropical diseases that must have been rife for 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 soldiers fighting in the Pacific, did did he get any of those malaria or, or or something like that? He certainly would have had certain malaria. He certainly would have had um, dysentery from time to time. But I think this is one thing you you realise when you when you start reading the memoirs of of these men. It was it was just a matter of fact. They had it. They had malaria. They would get it again next month. They would get it again the month after that. And they knew exactly what the signs were when they were getting an attack. And it was very debilitating at the time, but um, it was something they just, um, many did die from, from malaria, but those who didn't die from it learnt to live with it. Despite that rum that he brewed up for himself, Jock did become very sick uh, in mid-1944 with a fever and he was unable to eat. He was taken to a local chief's house and what did he realise was wrong with him? Well, this is probably where it was useful to Jock that he actually was a vet and not the stud master that he'd claimed to be. And so he, he knew enough from being a vet to know that um, he was seriously sick. And he and Rex Blow had uh, chatted um, just recently and talked about what diseases a gorilla with no access to medical facilities could afford to have. And very near the top of that was appendicitis. And Jock knew that that was exactly what he'd got. And appendicitis is something that if you don't treat can kill you. It's, it's very dangerous. I think, I think acute appendicitis is almost certain to kill you. And, uh, and Jock knew that his only way of, um, of saving himself was to find medical attention. And there was no medical attention. He was in the jungles of um, Mindanao. There were no doctors around. He managed to persuade a Moro chieftain and his wife to, um, to shelter him in their hut and he made a makeshift operating table out of floorboards and he ordered spoons and scissors and a razor blade to be sterilised in a, in a rice pot. And um, he found a mirror and set about actually operating on himself. Tom, this is almost incomprehensible to me. He removed his own appendix. Well, many have thought that, yes. Um, it, is a, it is an extraordinary story. Uh, it's not unique because I did find a couple of other examples of people who had removed their own appendix, but they were always under clinical conditions. They were 
they had a, one of them had, well, they both actually had anaesthetics and, um, you know, they were using probably sterilised instruments. Nobody has done it like uh, Jock did. But and he Rex had Bla no, no pain relief at all? I imagine he possibly had some of the rot gut that he'd made, but he had no real, no real pain relief. But if you're facing that kind of extremity, if you know that it's either that or you will die, I, I think that probably concentrates the mind. And at, at the risk of making myself faint, he would have had the razor, used a mirror, had the razor to cut through his flesh and then used the spoons. What, what were the spoons for? The spoons were to prise the muscles apart so that he could um, so that he could remove the appendix. He did have someone, a local student, who assisted him. Apparently, he was a medical student. Jock had put the hard word on him to actually do the operation himself, but he pointed out that he hadn't finished his course, and so Jock could, was able to persuade him to uh, to help by signing his own death certificate in advance <laughs> and uh, I dare say that it was the student who, who perhaps held the, um, the muscles apart with the spoons as using as a, as a retractor. And then what would he have sewn himself up with? Uh, palm fibre, whatever was available. How long did the operation take, did he say? He claims it took four and a half hours, which is unbelievably slow, actually, in, in the annals of those who have removed their own appendix. Uh, he, was, um, he, was, he was not a quick worker, but um, he wasn't working under optimum conditions, of course. <laughs> what state was he in afterwards? He couldn't really dwell on, on, on what kind of state he was in, and recuperation wasn't really a luxury that he could afford because... Um, very soon after he'd done the operation, word got to him that the Japanese were heading for the hut where he was staying. Someone had tipped them off because the, the island was full of informers. It was There were many guerrillas on the island, but it was also full of informers. And um, so he had, to, he had to get out quick smart. What did he take with him? Well, well apparently he took his um, appendix in a jar. He grabbed <laughs> that as he ran off. Although that's, that's the last appearance in the story, so I'm not sure what happened to them. These other people that you discovered who'd removed their own appendix, where, where had that happened? Where in the world were, were that, was they obliged to do that? Uh, in, a, in about the 1920s, uh, an American doctor in his own private hospital was waiting to have his appendix removed and decided he would do it himself. <laughs> Just so, to save time. <laughs> just to save time. He was, he was a, bit, uh, a bit cocky because he then did another operation on himself a few years later and that was the end of him, unfortunately. <laughs> the other one was a, a Soviet doctor down in, the Antar in an Antarctic station in the 1960s. And again, bo both of them had, had proper facilities. They had trained assistants. They did do the cutting themselves, but they were anaesthetised. It was... One of those did it, I think, in the American claim to have done it in about half an hour, the Russian in about an hour and a half, certainly much quicker than Jock. So after Jock managed to recover from this self-administered appendectomy, what did, he, what did he start using or how did his guerrilla activities change? Well, this is where he, um, he first caught sight of the boat that he would then um, arm and christen the bastard. And so he spent some time, some, some months there, I think, doing some operations on land, but actually quite relishing um, sailing around the coast of Mindanao with his, with his crew of Moros. He was obviously something of a diplomat as, as well as being a, a, a bit of a wild man. And he managed to attract many of the Moros to, to, to fight with him. And he was, um, he was a very inspiring leader. 
Was he known individually to the Japanese? They did put a reward on his head. I think it was 70,000 pesos. Rex Blow also had a reward on his head, although that was payable in khaki cloth, which apparently was, <laughs> was, uh, was very attractive to the locals. <laughs> but, but no one turned them in? No one turned them in, no. Jock does say in his memoir if, if he'd um, heard of anyone who was going to turn him in, then um, he, he would have dealt with him in advance. I, th I think Jock was, was a man who, who, as I said, did inspire uh, great loyalty among his, um, among his Moro fighters, but also clearly among the other guerrillas that he fought with. How did things finally end on Mindanao? The Americans invaded, so... They, they came ashore on, um, on another island first, but then they moved on to Mindanao. And Jock and Rex Blow had, as uh, guerrillas, had helped in operation to soften up the Japanese forces defending one of the places where the Americans were planning to land. Now, the, the Americans were arrived with, uh, with guns blazing, were about to completely lay waste to the, um, the town which they were planning to land at. And... Uh, Jock and Rex Blow pointed out that actually it was already in guerrilla hands. They'd suffered rather frequently from the Americans bombing places which were held by the guerrillas and, and they could actually just walk ashore if they wanted. And did the Americans listen? They, they did in the end. They held off. They went and bombarded another town which didn't need it as well. But they, they, did, um, they found that they could uh, go ashore because it was held by the, the guerrillas already. After the Americans retook this island of Mindanao, Jock and Rex were taken to the headquarters of the Australian General Blamey. What did Rex and Jock want from him? I think what was both very high in their minds was the thought of what had happened to the men at Sandakan. So they would not have known about the death marches, which, which in the end killed all of the Australians who, were, who survived. There was 1,500 or so um, Australian POWs at Sandakan who went on the death marches and all but six died. When it was clear to the Japanese that the Americans were, were going to invade, then they started moving the prisoners away from Sandakan inland and they marched them. They were so, so sick that it was almost inconceivable that they would have survived the conditions that they were, that they were traveling under. And almost all of them either died of hunger or disease or were shot or bashed to death by the Japanese. So Jock and Rex had a sense, not they wouldn't have known this detail, but they knew that those, the lives of those Australian soldiers held at Santa Can were at grave risk. They, they, there had been little bits of it of intelligence had slipped out about the condition of the Australians and and some British POWs at Sandakan, and Jock and uh, Rex both had escaped from Sandakan. They knew some of the men there. One of the men who was there was um, was Ginger Burnett, who Jock had escaped from Singapore with. And um, they were desperate to mount a rescue mission. They both knew that the Japanese were, were not there in strength, that it would not have been impossible to have mounted a rescue mission uh, by using um, boats to have um, actually saved a lot of those men. And Blamey promised them, according to both Rex Blow and Jock, uh, Blamey promised that he would mount a mission to rescue those men and that those two would be in on it. And what happened? It didn't happen, and there's been a lot of um, argument about why it might not have happened. Um, 
the chances are that it didn't happen because General MacArthur didn't want it to happen, wasn't prepared to make the the um, equipment available to them. Um, he probably didn't want to be seen to be making a huge effort to, to save Australian prisoners of war when he wasn't doing the same for Americans. So whatever the reason was in the end, the operation didn't happen. And I suspect that both um, Jock and Rex were, 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 really, were really mortified by that, haunted by that for the, for the rest of their lives, I suspect. Jock came back to Australia, still in the army, but then was well, the war wasn't quite over for him yet. Where was he sent in the middle of 1945? Well, Jock unbelievably wanted um, wanted another go. Unbelievably, and, uh, I'm with you on this, Tom. Unbelievably. Yeah. <laughs> so he joined the Z Special Unit, which um, was sending dropping troops behind the lines in Borneo, and their job was to to find intelligence, but also to Ready to ferment the um, local Dayak people into um, uh, fighting as guerrillas against the Japanese. Now, Rex Blow also joined the Z Special Unit, but he claims that he was drunk when he agreed to it. <laughs> I suspect that Jock was stone cold sober and demanded to go. The way you're describing him, he sort of sounds a little bit like the Black Knight out of Monty Python. Like, he's just going to keep <laughs> fighting. Whatever happens, he's going to keep fighting. So he's he's sent back and, and Rex was there. Who else turned up from Jock's past? Coram turned up, the uh, the constable for the Malay constable who had helped him escape from Sandakan also turned up. Now, according to Rex Blow's account after the war, Coram had been with him, and according to Jock's account after the war, Coram had been with him. But either way, Coram was certainly there and um, joined one of them, probably Rex actually, on a mission behind the lines in, in Borneo. This was Jock's final final resting point in World War Two. Were his exploits, his and Rex Blow's exploits as guerrilla fighters, known back in Australia at the time? They were known afterwards um, because they were they were they were both lionised after the Americans had invaded um, Mindanao because there were two Australians involved in the fighting that um, had happened before the landings. Um, but and there was probably a, a lot of publicity from the Australian Army about how Australians had played an important role in the landings. Although it was clear that some of the journalists who wrote so um, glowingly about Jock's um, achievements there had never met him, because in in one I found one newspaper account which said that Jock was believed to be an Englishman who had um, moved over from uh, who had come out to Australia on holiday. Now. One thing that everyone agreed on about Jock was that he never lost his Scottish brogue until the day he died, <laughs> so clearly they'd never met him. You're telling me that journalists were making up sensationalist stories, Tom. They were being this led a, a little a, bit. A scurrilous and shocking <laughs> accusation. <laughs> were he, was he decorated for his guerrilla fighting? Jock won two uh, military crosses, yes. Um, so... When you read Jock's memoir, so he wrote a memoir that was that was published uh, in the 1950s. A lot of it seems um, unbelievable in in the sense of it's exaggerated the extraordinary um, incidents that he describes. But it's worth reading the citations for those two military crosses because they pretty much support the um, the larger picture that Jock is is, is painting there of, of his exploits during the war. He he was an in, he was an incredibly courageous courageous man, um, and he was a, a superb leader. And his 
second military cross was was given to him largely because he was dropped behind the lines in in Borneo. All of their supplies were were dropped in the laps of the Japanese and most of their weapons too. But Jock somehow managed to get himself and his men to safety. So he was a man. If you if you needed a leader to help uh, help you in the the most extreme conditions, I think Jock was the man. What about any of the local men who risked their lives to help these Australians? Were they acknowledged formally? Australia after the war was was very well aware that they'd had huge help from the from the Dayaks in Borneo and they sent um, an officer up with a special mission to find out exactly what um, had been done who had helped and to actually pay them a reward so this um, Australian officer travelled around Borneo essentially with a with a, a suitcase of money I suspect and um, and gave rewards to locals who could um, show that they had helped what about Coram what happened to him Coram was almost a, a Malay version of Jock in some ways. He was someone else who was so hostile to the Japanese that he kept fighting. He was actually um, arrested by the Japanese more than once and accused of being a collaborator with the um, with the prisoners, which he was. Um, and had someone somehow managed to say convince them that he had um, he had changed his. Um, tune he'd realized how wrong he was and that he he must work with the Japanese and the Japanese fell for it every time and so Coram managed to carry out these extraordinary operations against the Japanese um, right under their noses because they um, he convinced them that he was so hostile to the white man. Coram received an MBE from the um, from the king as well but um, unfortunately he, he lived only a very short time after that but he was certainly one of the great heroes of this story and both Jock and um, Rex Blow had no doubt at all that they would never have been able to escape without Coram's help. And in fact, Rex um, gave Coram his watch, which was the only thing he had of value while he was in the in when he escaped from Sandakan. Why did Jock go back to Sandakan after the fighting ended? I, I believe Jock was haunted by the experience of, of what he must have suspected was going on to the men who didn't escape with him. Um, he went back to Sandakan. He started, by his own account, he started following the trail that the men who were sent on the death marches followed. And, and he walked for 100 kilometres, seeing seeing the graves beside the path, seeing, seeing bits of clothing, um, I, I think I'm sure that's an experience that that um, that he could never shake off. I think Rex Blow visited the the camp after the death marches too. He did. The, well, the two of them felt very strongly that that a rescue operation um, could have been mounted and should have been mounted, and and you know they were they were promised that it would be mounted, and uh, the fact that it didn't happen was was something I think they felt bitter about. And I guess for for Jock and for Rex, it would have been the awareness that if they hadn't taken that risk of jumping through the latrines that night, that would very likely have been their fate too. I'm sure it would have been. That was that was Ginger Burnett's fate. He he was he he survived one of the death marches, but um, was then put on a, a rice carrying party where they where prisoners were forced to to walk for uh, long distances carrying rice for the Japanese guards. And when they could no longer carry them, they were they were basically shot or or bayoneted. And um, and that that's what happened to Ginger Burnett. Jock quotes Ginger. 
Burnett saying, um, "I'm too young to um, I'm too young to to, to rot in the jungle. Um, the war's going to be over soon anyway. I'll I'll wait till it does." As you describe him, Tom Jock was was clearly someone made for fighting, made for this kind of guerrilla fighting. I mean, extraordinary courage and and ingenuity and and stoicism. What was life like for him after the war? How does a man like that adapt to everyday life? I think with with in Jock's case, with great difficulty. In fact, there's a strange sort of symmetry about um, his life after the war and um, Rex Blow's life. Now, Rex lived a long life after the war, but they were both very restless. They both lived a, a, a restless sort of life. Jock went up to Papua New Guinea and worked as a government vet for a while and then decided to start a coffee plantation. And, and what was his health like in the years after after surviving the kind of life that he did during the war? Well, he, like so many soldiers, had the legacy of that, of their appalling ill health that they'd suffered during the war. And so he had recurrent malaria for, for years afterwards. In fact, a journalist on the bulletin who knew him um, describes staying in a hotel with him just before Jock was awarded his uh, military cross and saying... He'd had another of his bouts of malaria and Jock had said, um, just put two bottles of beer on the floor and when I can drink them, I'll be, I'll be mended. <laughs> he dodged death so many times. The escapes, the gun battles, the self-removal of his appendix. Did he die peacefully of old age? Sadly not. I, I wonder if, if someone like Jock was ever going to die peacefully. He, he, um, he died in an accident. He was on his coffee plantation and he um, apparently backed his jeep into a tree and a, a branch fell and, and killed him. Did he leave a family behind? He left his estranged wife and son in Scotland and um, he, he did have a family in, in Queensland as well and um, yes, he was survived by them. And was he mourned at the time? I mean, it's not a name that I'd ever heard of, Tom, before your book, but was he a celebrated figure in Australia when he died? He certainly was not a celebrated figure in Australia. He was known among the people among among people in Papua New Guinea, he he had an obituary in the in uh, in a newspaper up in Papua New Guinea. But um, I I think he was um, he was people didn't know him in in Australia at all. There was he was the subject of newspaper stories in the immediate aftermath of the war, and it was um, reported that he'd had his military cross in when he was uh, awarded those in Brisbane. But um, I suspect he didn't like the limelight. He didn't seek the limelight. And, um, and consequently, he was, he was a man who, who was, who, whose exploits weren't well known. He did write his own story. He was keen to actually make some money to run his coffee plantation. So he, he did write some memoirs. So he wanted to tell his story. But um, uh, he certainly didn't um, seek out journalists to, um, to, to publicise him. You say he wasn't remembered by the general public. Was he remembered by his, his army comrades, by that world of, of other World War II survivors? Well, his name is certainly one that does come up when uh, certainly Rex Blow writes a lot about of him about him in um, in the in his own um, his own book. 
the ABC did a radio series in the 1980s about prisoners of war, Tim Bowden and Hank Nelson, and several people there spoke um, about their experiences at Sandakan and elsewhere, and again, some of the wildest <laughs> incidents that anyone could remember involved Jock, and, um, and so he was mentioned in some of those. Tom, thank you for for being my guest on Conversations. His is an incredible life. I was fascinated to learn about it. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. It was great to be here. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.